0: Welcome to the Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. I'm the youngest of three biologically. Um, My sister is seven years older than me and my brother is five years older than me and my dad... Uh, my biological dad left when I was when I was two. So my sister was nine and my brother was seven, uh, something like that, and I was two. Um, and I don't have any memories of him, really, or I didn't have any memories of him. And um, my parents did a good job of never—my my mom remarried and my stepdad, um, all of my memories from childhood, my stepdad was around. And my parents, they did a good job of not bashing my dad in front of me. I can't remember them ever— um, speaking an ill word about my biological father, at least not in front of me. And, um, I can remember them saying things like even my, my stepfather saying, Oh, you got your dad's smile or your, your dad used to come fishing here or, um, but, but never, never anything negative. I, in honesty to this day, I don't understand what happened. I don't know why he left or, uh, totally. I don't understand. I know that there was some depression involved. I know that there was some anxiety involved, um, some mental health stuff. Um, but i hit this gap in my in my early teen years you know your middle school years um, where i kind of had this obsession with him and partially because i didn't know anything about him he was just kind of this mystery it was almost as if he died i didn't i didn't know much about him at all and, and no one in my family ever talked about him and, and i think it was different for everyone else because everyone else knew him my sister was 9 when he left like that's a big you know you know you understand things at 9 my brother was 7 um, so it was this mystery that I think everyone else knew the answer to except for me. I didn't I didn't know the answer. And so I hit this gap in my teenage years of trying to understand who I was and what I was called to and what life was about. And I remember this period of maybe even just a couple weeks of kind of obsessing about my biological dad and wondering who he was. And I remember laying in bed late at night and thinking, I wonder if he's like this or I wonder if he's like this. And then I would wonder, I wonder if I've ever seen him in public. Like he, I knew that he had been around the city. So I'm like, I wonder if I've ever seen him. And so I remember being this, I mean, I was maybe 12. Um, I was about this high and about this round. Um, and I remember walking through the mall and, and, and looking for him, like starting to look and wondering, I I wouldn't, I I wouldn't recognize him if I saw him. I knew I wouldn't, but I wondered if he would recognize me and I would just kind of, my eyes would roam public places and I would just kind of, I wonder, I wonder if I've ever seen him before, um. As I was studying our text for this week, um, I was I started to think about that story because that's really what all of history does: looking for Messiah. From right out the gate, Genesis chapter three, what we're going to look at this morning, we get this picture that there would be a Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent. And all of Scripture is kind of this eyes roaming crowds, looking and wondering when the one will come. What will he be like? What will he accomplish? All of Scripture is this longing for the revealing of the Messianic figure. In Charles Wesley's hymn, Hark the Herod Angel Sings, you know, you remember that hymn? Do you guys want me to sing it for you? No, you don't want me to sing that. Um, there's a missing verse that, that most hymnals would ever take out, um, but the hymn says this. Come, desire of nations, come fix in us thy humble home. Right. listen to this part, rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now efface, stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Hark the Herod Angel sings, glory to the newborn king. And so Wesley is honing in on this prophecy from Genesis chapter three, that uh, here is words, rise the woman's conquering seed bruising us the serpent's head he's honing in on this prophecy that there will be a conqueror and then he ties it to the incarnation hark the herod angel sings glory to the newborn king one of the most important passages in scripture is found in luke chapter 24 um, the story of the two men on the on the way to the, the the road to emmaus is what we call it anybody grow up methodist and you go on the road to emmaus Thing, whatever, it's like a retreat. Um, they're on the road to Emmaus and they're talking to Jesus. They don't know it's Jesus, you know. And they're talking to Jesus. And there's this, this point in the conversation where Jesus says this to the two men. That this is after the resurrection. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning, this 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 verse right here creates for us um, what's called a hermeneutic or a pattern of interpretation. It says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Beginning with Moses. Remember, we believe Moses wrote the Pentateuch, um, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Um, And so beginning with the very beginning of scripture, all the way through the prophets. So think we end the Old Testament with Malachi. All the way through the prophets, Jesus explains Scripture and how it all testifies of Himself. So all Scripture according to Jesus is about about Him. And so that creates for us what we call a Christocentric hermeneutic, meaning that as we read Scripture, we realize that it's all about Jesus and all the shadows and types from the sacrifices to the temple imagery to the messianic um, pictures that we get from kings. It's all about Jesus. It's telling us about the coming Messiah. It circles around His personhood. He's the center of it. And so a lot of times... Um, Tim Keller in one of his books gives this example. A lot of times in reading scripture, it's like, um, do you remember the movie The Sixth Sense? where, or one of these suspense movies where at the end of the movie your eyes are open and you're like, ah, I should have seen that all along. But then you go back and watch the movie and all the way through you start to realize that there's all these little hints and clues pointing you towards the end, pointing you towards the outcome. And, and they say that's, that's what reading scripture is like. We understand the end. We've seen Jesus on Calvary, crucified, resurrected from the dead, his heel on the head of the serpent. We understand that he is the coming conqueror. And as we step back into scripture, we just start To realize all these little hints and nuances and shadows and types that are pointing to him. And so, uh, throughout church history, we've seen Messiah in Genesis chapter 3. Our text this morning is verse 14 through 24, and what's called the proto evangelium. That means the first gospel. Um, And that's the text we're going to kind of sink into this, this morning. So, starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's our text this morning, but we'll keep rolling. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so here we have the consequence of Adam and Eve's fall. Remember last week we talked about total depravity, the fact that in that moment of rebellion, all of earth was kind of shattered, all of creation was broken, that there was this complete unhinging that happened when the, the man and woman which God gave dominion, they handed their dominion over to the serpent because of deception and creation becomes unhinged. So here's the consequence, which we just read, which God gives to Adam and Eve, that there's a consequence for the serpent and there's a consequence for Eve and there will be a consequence for Adam. To Eve, she'll have pain in childbirth and pain is introduced into perfection. Now we have pain and to Adam, he will stress all the days of his life about how to eat. He will toil. He'll understand anxiety about whether the crops will succeed or whether the crops will fail. All of a sudden, stress has entered into his life. These are the consequences of the fall. But in, in this indictment, in this moment of consequence, God, it's just like God to uh, tuck away a little promise right in the middle of it. It's just like God that in the moment of Justice in the moment of receiving our due, our due punishment that God hides away for us a promise that there will be a coming seed whose heel will crush the head of the serpent and whose heel will be bruised by the serpent. In the curse, he's planting seeds of hope. He doesn't leave us depressed, anxious. He doesn't leave us with this gloom worldview. But here we ha- we we just run into an optimistic worldview because our optimism centers around the seed, around the person. And so I just kind of want to play with the verse here for a minute. And then I want to talk about how the verse... Becomes a staple. It this verse in particular creates a trajectory for all of Scripture that points us towards the coming Messiah. I was taught, um I don't know if I was taught by anyone or if I read this when I was young. I don't know. I've always been taught and believed that this verse, when it says that, um I think the translation I read for you says that um that Eve's offspring, but the Hebrew word there for offspring is the same word that's always used in the Old Testament for seed. And so, like the King James, for instance, translates it as the woman's seed. And that, that's a consistent translation. Um, I was taught always that, um, that women don't have seed, that men have seed. And so the fact that, that the Hebrew says that by the seed of the woman, that that was a, a prophecy that spoke to, um, the virgin birth, that, that this one that was born wouldn't be born in a normal way, that he would be born in a specific way. He would be born in a unique way, that this one would be the seed of a woman. The, the virgin birth um, was the way that I was always taught. There's some pushback to that idea. Um, a lot of scholars and commentators will point out that the word seed is a, is a collective noun, that it, that it can mean um, the offspring as a whole will have enmity with evil. And that's okay. That's not a bad stance to take, but I don't think we're wrong to assume this as a virgin birth prophecy based on the, that, that comment by Jesus that all of scripture surrounds, surrounds him. So I, I think it's safe and, and I assume that in that line that the woman's seed will crush the head of the serpent that we already see pictures, shadows at least. Maybe not perfect prophetic decoration, but at least there's a shadow of the one who was to come. And so for me, I'm already running into Virgin birth ideas. So he's, it says that the the seed um, will have enmity with the serpent's offspring. But then 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 it shifts not from the seed it, 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 to to a he. And so even if the seed was a collective noun, which I even if it meant that it, it breaks at the point that the pronoun shifts to a singular masculine person. And so now we're not looking for the seed, the the seed of Eve in the sense that corporate humanity is going to crush the head of the serpent. But there's a singular he. And so this he for me changes the of scripture. Because the point of this is not that we will crush the head of the serpent. It's not that we are going to rise up with our political movements and all of our energy and that we're going to form the perfect party and that we are, through our intellect, going to conquer evil. There's no we in this text. There is a profound he. That pronoun is singular masculine. There's a he who will stomp the head of the serpent. And now I'm lost in my notes, so you've got to give me a second. This he dictates the trajectory of Scripture. No community, political party, no church, mosque, or synagogue. There's spiritual leaders who may have hints of truth in them. For instance, Gandhi is going to play with the Sermon on the Mount, but Gandhi does not crush the head of the serpent. And so we're not synchristic in our ideas. It's not that we believe that all religions have some form of truth, and so you can get any way. No, there's one individual. There's one messianic appointed and anointed figure who will Dig his heel into the head of the serpent and by product will crush all of evil for humanity. One individual. And so our eyes, as we read scripture, like my young 11, 12 year old eyes, roam crowds looking for that one individual, looking for that one messianic figure who on his back um, would conquer victory. So so really quick, just to play with this for a moment. Um, this, it says that um, that individual, that he will bruise or often translated crush, he will crush the head of the serpent. Now in John Calvin's commentaries, he pointed out that the head is the superior, what he called the superior part. And so this he will crush the head of the serpent. That's the, the superior part. That's the part that wins crush. Out goes life. We have uh, we've had a problem with snakes uh, at our house the last couple weeks, and um, so Sean and I bought some of the snake poison. Do you guys, you know, you can buy snake poison, and so we put the snake poison out in the yard, and it smells awful. I'm not I'm not exaggerating when I say that we live in kind of a cul de sac. That when you cross over to the cul de sac, maybe 100, 200 yards from our house, you can already smell the snake poison. Um, so I'm sure my neighbors are all like, "What in the world is going on?" Um, but when you want to kill something, it was Sean, we had a copperhead the other day, you, you take the head out. The head is the aim. If, if I get in a fight with somebody today and, and there's danger, I promise you that I'm not trying to scratch at their heel. Okay? I'm going for the head. I'm throwing blows to the head. You guys don't want to see Ali get in the ring. That's not true. Don't, please don't hold me to that. But the head is the superior part in Calvin's mind. And in, in, in Calvin's commentary, he says that ultimately this means that this Messiah will fully eradicate the power and the influence of the serpent. He will fully wipe away the, all the strategies, all the plans, all the outcomes and leftover little parts and pieces of evil entering the world. That this Messiah will reverse the curse and he will crush Satan's head fully He'll deliver us from death and all of its consequences. But the message here is that um, there's this wrestling with evil until. There's this wrestling with evil until the revealing of the Messiah. there Until the revealing of the appointed one. Until he comes and crushes that head. And then the prophecy has this other little part to it. It says that the serpent will bruise that Messiah's heel. And so this Messiah will have ultimate victory. He is the coming conqueror. But that victory will come with pain. And this Messiah will suffer. And this Messiah will experience the fangs of death pierce his skin. And so we're looking for a coming Messiah. We're looking for a coming conqueror. But from this verse already in my mind, we understand that this this. This coming conqueror will be struck. And so Calvin calls the heel the inferior part. And so he will be struck, but he won't be struck in the superior part. He won't be conquered, but he will experience pain and suffering. And he will, he will not be exempt from the hurt that we walk through, but he'll embrace the hurt and, and by death, he will conquer death. By pain, he will conquer pain. And through suffering, he will end suffering. And so as scripture develops, we come to like the sacrifice imagery. Last week we talked about the fact that God kills some animal in the garden already to clothe Adam and Eve. So we've already come to that that idea in Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. We're getting sacrificial imagery. We're getting temple imagery. And it's all pointing to the fact that this coming messianic figure will be the ultimate sufferer. And so when Isaiah 53 comes into view that he will be wounded for our transgression, crushed for our iniquity, that text makes perfect sense in my mind because I'm looking for a conqueror, but a conqueror who experiences pain when Zechariah 12 comes to the forefront and he says that Israel will look on the one whom they have pierced. They'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They'll mourn for the one whom they've pierced. And the scripture says that from that piercing, there would be a, a flow of atonement for the nations. So the seed of a woman, that's a strange qualifier, the seed of a woman probably points to a a virgin birth who will crush Satan, fully eradicate Satan, but not without pain and suffering. So already from Genesis chapter 3, we're coming to, again, what history calls the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel message, that if you just stare at that thing and pick at it, you know, you really pick at it and think around it and walk around that one verse, you would come to the conclusion that there is a he, a profound he who is going to change the the order of creation, who's going to reverse the fall. So with that revelation, I want to just show you how that starts to affect the way that we read Scripture Um, and the way that all of the Old Covenant is really looking towards the Messiah. So, for instance, we get that fall text at the end of Genesis chapter 3, the the text that we're in today, and then Genesis 4 verse 1 reads this way. Do you have that for me? Now the man had relations with his wife, Eve. She conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. That, that verse here is kind of strange. Remember, we've talked about this in the past, but you see how Lord is capital L-O-R-D. It's not, it's not normally the way that you see the Lord. And so what that tells you is that in the Hebrew, that's the tetragrammaton. That's the, what we in English say, the Y-H-W-H. And so, what King James translated as Jehovah, but scholars told us later that probably best was translated as Yahweh. And so literally that says, I've gotten a man-child, um, a man, a, a, a son, man-child's a funny word, um, with the help of Yahweh. But, but in the Hebrew, with the help of is not there. It literally just reads, I've gotten a son, Yahweh. I've gotten a child, Jehovah. There's, and so like if you watch the ESB and ASB, a lot of times the translations will have that with the help of, in italics, because they don't really, that, that's a hard translating place. And so sometimes it says, with the help of the Lord. Sometimes it says, through the Lord. Sometimes it says, by the Lord. And sometimes it just says, I've gotten the Son, Lord. And that's literally what the Hebrew reads. And so some commentators, John Gill is one, for instance, say that that what lit- what Eve literally said was, I have gotten the Son divinity or divine, that she may have misunderstood the prophecy and that she almost all commentators say that she expects Cain to be the messianic figure, but she may have even known that the messianic figure would be divine. And so she may have even said, I have gotten the son Yahweh, believing that Cain would have some divine element, obviously wrong in that. Um, but, but that's the way that the Hebrew reads. And so immediately Cain comes into picture and you you can imagine Adam and Eve contemplating that line that their offspring would crush the head of the serpent. And so there would be some anticipation and some hope and some like longing for the fact that maybe this son, maybe the son would crush the head of the serpent. But as you read the text, you realize that this son is ate up with the serpent and this son has filled with envy and hatred. And rather than crushing the head of the serpent, he would crush the head of his brother. And so hope's lost. And so the scripture says that God gives Adam and Eve Seth. And Seth, that, that name literally means compensation or it means anointed one. The anointed. And so they name him Seth. And I'm suggesting with hope that this would be the Messiah. That, that, that maybe Seth would carry out the messianic role and Seth falls short. And, and watch, this one is really interesting to me. Can you give me Genesis chapter 5, um, verse 29, if you have it? Um, this is Lamech when he names Noah. This is interesting. He names Noah saying, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. So Lamech names Noah and says of Noah, remember that's the curse that God gave Adam. That's Adam's part. That, that, that he would not, he would have to work from his, with toil and sweat. That he would have to work hard to get fruit from the ground. And so when Lamech names Noah, he says that this one is going to give us rest from that. And so maybe Noah is a, a messianic type in that he builds an ark and, and, and saves some of humanity from the flood, but he ultimately doesn't deliver from that toil. Not, not Noah. Noah's not the one to fully overthrow that curse. And so Scripture just starts to play with this idea of who's the coming Messiah. So we get pictures of Moses. Moses is interesting and Moses is going to deliver Israel out of Egypt. But Moses has these shadows of fear of man, right? Like he's intimidated and he's fearful and then there's these outburst of anger and and moses is still ate up with the serpent there's still like attributes of the serpent that we see in in moses and then we we get to joshua not joshua we get to judges and the judges the repetitive theme in in judges that every man does what's right in his own eyes that in 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 judges every man does what's right in his own eyes and we get that there's utter chaos from that fact that when men do just what they want to do there's evil that we are innately broken and we can't just say, hey, you do you and I'm going to do me and everything is going to be okay. That doesn't work. Judges teaches us that. And so from Judges and we get to Ruth, we're building towards a king. And Judges really paints a picture that we need, we need authority. And, and, and Ruth teaches us that there's, you know, this, the lineage of, of what's coming. And then we get to the kings and the first king we get is Saul and he's head and shoulders above the rest, man. Like handsome, young, tall, strong man. And there's some hope that maybe he's going to be the deliverer. And in some sense, he is a deliverer, but he's still jealous and like evil. And selfish. And he's not it. But, but, but in reading the text, we're not too worried that he's not it because we've already met David. And David is different because David is a shepherd and he's a warrior. He's going to take down, um, Goliath. But, but God says of David that he's a man after my own heart and that, that God doesn't look on outward appearance like Saul. He looks on inward appearance and David has a certain inward appearance that's pure. And so we get this worshiper and this warrior and there's this hope that maybe David is Messiah and he certainly is a messianic figure but then he lays down in bed with Bathsheba and kills her husband and really quickly he's got the same serpent nature living in him that the rest of us do and so hopes dropped and hopes dropped and hope dropped and maybe this one not this one maybe this one not this one and all of scriptural history is looking for this Messiah of Genesis chapter 3. And when Malachi finishes his writing, there's 400 years of silence. Before Gabriel announces um, to a young virgin that there's a seed in her womb. And we get Jesus and Jesus is born and he's just just utterly and profoundly different than any other person who who has ever walked the earth. And so he he does things like sits down with the the woman at the well in John chapter 4 the the adulterous woman caught in adultery in John eight he doesn't he doesn't stone her but he shows mercy like what is what is that and he's and he's very, very kind. But what? watch him at, at 12. He knows scripture better than the rabbis. Remember, he's in the temple and he's like like astounding the rabbis with all of this wisdom. He knows scripture better than any other. He expresses this extreme love and care and kindness that is not normal. That's not like us. Everything about Jesus is utterly different. He's not selfish. He's not full of envy and deceit, he's not looking for. He's, he's not self-serving. He's not Saul and he's not David. He's just 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 different. And then, and then they say of him, when he teaches, he teaches with authority like no one we've ever known. And then he speaks to demons and they just run. And he tells dead people just to get up. And so all of the hope... Is, is set on this Jesus. And, and, and you start to watch Him and contemplate Him, and He's kind of confounding everyone because He's, he's not quite what they expect, but yet He's more than you expect, but, but different. And so some reject him because he's not operating in a political role. Because we learned from David that Messiah would be kingly. But Jesus doesn't operate in a political role. But the, the problem is that those who are looking for a politician forgot that this problem in Genesis chapter 3, this is not a political problem. This is a profoundly spiritual issue that he came to, to stomp out. So he doesn't come as a political figure. He comes as Messiah ready to stomp the head of the serpent. And he'll do so by enduring extreme suffering on the cross of Calvary. And so from our little study of Genesis, we've painted a worldview. We've painted an idea that um, that there's one God, that creation is good, that the serpent is a deceiver and not in control, that we are profoundly broken because of sin. And what we f- conclude with on this creation narrative is we have an optimistic worldview, but it is only optimistic as long as it circles around Jesus. I don't have an optimism that says all people are good and if we just rally and fight for good, we're going to succeed. But I do have an optimism that says that if the church would grab the gospel, would preach the gospel, Jesus would stomp the head of the serpent and people, man. He comes and resides in us and, and crushes the evil within us. And, and what I'm saying is that through politics and through ideas, I can't fix you, but he could fix you if you would come to this revelation of who he is. The, the fixing is in Jesus. So, what I'm saying is that from that passage in Luke and from this idea, we start to interpret Scripture with a Christocentric lens. We interpret Scripture understanding that it's all about Jesus. But what I'm suggesting is that you learn to live with a Christocentric lens. You learn to live a lifestyle that is all about Jesus. You learn to talk when people... this. put this in here somewhere. When, When people ask you, you know, who are you? Where are you from? Tell me about yourself. That you don't start with, I accomplished this and I went to school here and I am so successful because I accomplished this major deal at a young age. And come look at my clothes. Like, look at my attire. You realize that we're trying to communicate things through our attire. And architecture speaks and so we want big, nice houses because when people see our big, nice houses they'll realize how successful we are because architecture speaks and our culture says you ought to speak about how great you are, but I'm saying that from Genesis chapter 3, that that pronoun, that he, should totally murder your worldview. And when you, when I talk about me, when you start asking me about, about me, that you, you ought to hear a he a lot. That it should be like infused in my speech. He did this, and he set me free, and he set my... F- my feet on a solid rock, and he took me out of miry clay, and he delivered me from demonic oppression, and he forgave my sins, and I was embarrassed because I was utterly evil and a failure, and he, you know what he did was he took my sins, and he cast them to the depths of the sea, and he set me free from shame, and he set me free from bondage, and now my speech circles around the heat, because I live with a Christocentric lens, And so in that, we understand that people can't fix themselves. So I'm not about, I'm not, I'm not gonna stand up here and give you self-help lecture after self-help lecture. God willing, I'm gonna stand up here and press you towards Christ because I can diagnose your problem. It's not hard to diagnose problems. It's really not. It's very easy for preachers to stand up and say, you're all selfish. Probably true. But that doesn't fix anything. The proclamation is, you're selfish, but my God, Jesus can fix that. There's a selfless one who would come and take up residence within your bones. And he would teach you through the infilling of the Holy Spirit how to live selfless. So it doesn't help culture for me to stand up and just keep proclaiming that, that adultery is wrong or homosexuality is wrong. and that I'm, I have to do that. I need to be faithful to Scripture. But to, but to proclaim sin without offering the, the solution is what I call ignorant. You can tell me I have problems, but bring me a solution. And so we I want us to be a people who are solution driven. And so when I get around an unbeliever, it's not necessarily my goal to like point out everything that's wrong with their life. That would be really easy. But if I can get them in a conversation about Jesus, Jesus is able to Fix the things that are broken. Just diagnosing the problem is not helping anything. But if I can bring you to the solution, which is a singular masculine person, according to Genesis chapter 3, he can begin to do his work. He is the crusher of the serpent's head, not me. I just introduce him. So now our proclamation, my lifestyle is wrapped up in Jesus. My proclamation is wrapped up in Jesus not on the self-help train. I don't have five steps to a better life. I have one person to a better life. And one, one filling. And to remember that, that this, this figure, this mess, Messiah, this anointed one, this Jesus, he, he, he bought that victory with blood. And he remember, he suffered. That's the other part of that prophecy, that he would suffer for us, that he loved us so much that he would suffer for us. Bought with a price. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his Creation and Fall, which is his like kind of commentary um, on the early chapters of Genesis, he says this, What a strange paradise is the hill of Golgotha. This cross, this blood, this broken body. What a strange tree of life. This trunk on which the very God had to suffer and die. Yet it's the very kingdom of life and of the resurrection, which by grace, God grants us again. He's saying that it's this cross becomes the tree of life, this blood that was shed. This is our atonement, this resurrection power. That's that's the, 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 the text read for us this morning, that resurrection power, that's going to take up residence in us and that's going to lead us out of death. It's this this suffering that he endured for us, which buys. For us, new life. And so Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Be sure to visit christianrenewal.hhi.org for more resources.